<clears throat> well, please grab a Bible and open up to Revelation 5. So it's the last book in the Bible, fifth chapter. Last week we looked at chapter 4 and we saw the, uh, the beginning of the ultimate experience of heaven tourism, where John was invited up into heaven. And we got to tag along and see what John sees. Um, now these, these visions that John sees, these are not like the books that you might run across today uh, in the bookstore, people who had near-death experiences and then came back to tell you about it. Um, this is not John trying to make a quick buck by telling you what you want to hear about the afterlife. This is a vision that's given by God to the Apostle John for us, and it is an incredible vision. Last week in chapter 4, we saw God. We saw his throne room. And this room really was a throne room. It was a room that was all about the throne of God. The throne was in the center of the room. Everything in the room was described in relation to the throne and around the throne. And the whole point that was being made by the centrality of the throne was that God is in control. He is on his throne. He reigns over all things. He's in absolute control. And at the same time, he's receiving worship. We met two groups of beings in heaven. There were these heavenly uh, living creatures, they're called. You know, one had a face like a lion, one had a face like an ox, one looked like a human, and one had the face of an eagle. And they all have six wings, and they've got eyes all over. And if you saw one of these things, you would just be terrified. You'd probably be prone to worship it, or you couldn't take your eyes off of it. And yet these amazing, majestic creatures have one job, All they do 24-7 is they praise the one who is seated on the throne. And likewise, there are these elders, these 24 exalted humans who themselves have thrones around the throne. And they have crowns because they've received glory and honor. But these elders don't just sit on their thrones polishing their crowns and say, worship me, aren't I something special? But they take their thrones and they cast them before the one who's seated on the throne. And they bow down and worship and they praise in response to the living creatures and they say, worthy is the one who's seated on the throne. Because when God is seated on his throne and we see him in his glory, all we can do is worship. It's a wonderful passage. And I had a great time last week using that as a springboard into worshiping uh, through song. We transitioned after that, after looking at the, the scriptures and just sang for a while and then we... Um, We offered our whole lives in response to God in worship. But I wonder, as we looked at this chapter last week, if any of you noticed something missing. Maybe more specifically, someone. Jesus is not there. At least not yet. He he wasn't described. Chapter 4, all about the one seated on the throne, everyone worshiping the Father, but the Son is conspicuously absent. So where is he? And today we get the answer to that question. And when Jesus finally walks on stage, the universe explodes with a level of worship that makes everything we saw in chapter 4 look like the warm-up. So let's read Revelation 5 and see what happens when Jesus shows up. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, 
who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This passage, plot-wise, tells a very simple story. It's a story of a problem and a solution. The problem is that there is a scroll that no one can open. The solution is that Jesus can open the scroll. It's a simple story. Not a lot happens plot-wise. But if you understand what's going on, it takes you on an emotional roller coaster from the lowest lows to the highest highs. And so what I want to do today is help you to feel that. I want to walk through this story to help us to feel why this is such an incredibly big deal. First of all, that there is a scroll that no one can open. And secondly, that Jesus can open the scroll. Let's begin with the problem. There's a scroll that no one can open. In verse 1 through 3, let's look at it again. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So there's a scroll, right? It's in God's right hand. It's full of writing. It says it's written within and without. It's on the front and the back, just full of writing, but it's closed and it's sealed with seven seals. So picture like those wax seals, right? The old time letters you would would be sealed with. It's got these seven seals. You can't open it. It's full of writing. It's in God's right hand. What is this scroll? 
Uh, the simplest answer is that it is the prophecy of the end of the world. One commentator called it the scroll of destiny. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter. Right? So I, I don't know. The scroll of destiny. Um, another way to think of it is it's, it's really the story of what you're going to read in the rest of Revelation. Okay, it's the unfolding of the rest of the story of how God is going to defeat evil and bring a new restored creation. It's the prophecy of the end of the world. Now we know this because of two significant Old Testament passages that this, this passage echoes. One of them is Ezekiel chapter 2. Uh, in Ezekiel 2, the prophet Ezekiel is commissioned by God and he receives the prophecy that he's going to tell. In Ezekiel 2, um, he is given a scroll, much like this one, that symbolizes that prophecy. So Ezekiel 2.9, it says this, When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. That's Ezekiel 2.7, and he says, he, he says this vision, very similar. There's a hand, God's hand stretching out. He's got a scroll in it. The scroll is written on the front and on the back. It's a symbol of the prophecy he's going to receive. So we know that when we see a picture of a scroll coming from the hand of God with writing on the front and the back, that that means it's a prophecy. Now in Ezekiel's, he said, it was spread open before me. Okay, so he was able to read it. It was right there. It was spread open because that was a message that God had for Ezekiel to tell to his people right there at that time. It was a prophecy for then. So it was open. He wanted Ezekiel to understand it and communicate it. But it wasn't, prophecies aren't always open. The other big passage is in Daniel 12. Where in Daniel 12, God gives Daniel a prophecy and this time the scroll is not opened, it's sealed. Because it's a prophecy, not for right then, but for the end of the world. So he says in Daniel 12, 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Okay, seal the book until the time of the end. And a few verses later, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So Daniel, like Ezekiel, received a prophecy, but it, this one was sealed because it wasn't for that time, it was for the end time. And so both of these images are in play as we see a scroll here written on the front and the back with seven seals. As God holds out this scroll written on the front and the back, we think, oh, Ezekiel, this is a prophecy. But as we see that the scroll has seals on it, we think, oh, Daniel, this is a prophecy of the end of the world. And John recognizes that. He sees that this is God holding out the scroll that contains within it the final chapter of the story. The end of how he's going to defeat evil and make all things new. And so when John sees this scroll, he's very excited. He's very excited because he's been wanting to read that book for a while. It reminds me of the time when the third Hunger Games book came out. And my wife and I both you know, really enjoyed the, the first two books of the trilogy and made the fatal mistake of starting the series before the series was done. 
And so we finished the second book, and we had to wait like a year for the author to finish the third book and for it to come out. And we were so excited when, it, when we got the release date that we pre-ordered two copies because you know we weren't going to fight over this. Okay, you get your copy, I'll get my copy. And then, you know, the, the, we ordered it online. So the book showed up, and it's like, all right, kids, go to bed. I don't care, it's 4 o'clock, we haven't had dinner. Just go to, it's daylight savings time, whatever. Just go to bed. Um, and just read the book the whole night through until we finished because we so desperately wanted to know how the story ended. And the same thing for John. He sees this book, he sees the scroll, this is the end of the story, and he wants to know how does it end. He knew how the story started. John knew the story. He'd been following along. He knew how it started. He knew that God created the world, and when he made the world, it was perfect. And John knew what went wrong. He knew that Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, death entered the world, and disease and sorrow and everything wrong. And John knew that God had promised to fix the world. Even in Genesis 3.15, right after the first sin, God makes this promise that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush the serpent one day, that Satan would be defeated. John knew that story. He knew the promises. And he had lived through the initial fulfillment of that promise. See, Apostle John, right? He, He had lived with Jesus. He had seen Jesus come and live the perfect life and die on the cross, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world, that he might take on himself the sins of the world and bring healing and deliverance from this curse, from the fall. And he saw Jesus rise from the dead, victorious over sin, defeating Satan. John saw that. He knew the story. He knew how it started. He knew what went wrong. He knew what God promised. He saw the first the beginning of the deliverance. But John knew also that the story wasn't over the moment that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, there's still work to be done. The decisive victory had been won on the cross and in the empty tomb. But there was still work to be done. Sin, although defeated, was still rampant in the world. And Jesus, though he had ascended as Lord, was still not recognized as Lord by everyone. There's still work to be done. It's a lot like in World War II, 1944, D-Day. That climactic, decisive battle when the Allies defeated um, Germany in that moment. The the war wasn't over, not officially, after D-Day. But historians will tell you, after that point, in one sense, it was all mopping up. The decisive victory was won at that battle. But the war wasn't over for almost another year. In the same way, Jesus had won the decisive battle through his death, through his resurrection, but there was work to be done. He still had to defeat all of the, the reign of sin in this world. Every knee had to still bow before him and acknowledge him as king. And so he rises from the dead. John saw that. But then, just when you thought you knew what he would do next, Jesus leaves this gigantic cliffhanger. After achieving his victory on the cross, he leaves. 
He leaves. He, he says to his people, I've, I've done phase one. I'm going to go to heaven for a while. I'm going to come back, and when I do, I'm going to defeat evil completely. I'm going to make everything new. I'm going to establish my kingdom completely. Until then, I'm leaving my spirit with you. I want you to go. I want you to tell everybody about me. I'm going to do your best to love your neighbors, right? I want you to make disciples, but I'm going to leave for a while. And he does. And, And he leaves with this huge cliffhanger. And so John goes the rest of his life, and probably at this point in Revelation is about 60 years after that. He's just lived year after year looking, watching, waiting. Is this the day that Jesus comes back? Is this the time when he comes back? Are, are we finally at the end of the story? And so if you think that I was excited for the third book and Hunger Games to come out, I got nothing on John when he sees that scroll. This is the end of the story. And I'm sure that when he sees it, he wants to run up there and grab it and read it and find out what is in this scroll. But he can't because it's sealed. So the angel shouts, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And they search everywhere to find someone. There's no one in heaven. There's no one on earth. There's no one under the earth. It's like us saying they searched high and low. And they could find no one. They searched every nook and cranny of the universe and there was not a single person who could open the scroll or even look inside it. This is tragic. This is like sitting down in the movie theater for opening night of Star Wars Episode Seven, And you're all nerded out, right, wearing the Darth Vader suit. And your kid's dressed like an Ewok and you've all got lightsabers. And your wife's sporting the Leia buns, you know, and you're ready to go. And, and, the, and the manager walks out and the house lights come up and he says, we're sorry, but there's no one qualified to run the projector. And the scroll is right there. The universe is sitting in anticipation, waiting to see what is this going to be. And the angel said, there's no one. There's no one who can open it. So how does John respond? He weeps. Verse 4, do you see that? It says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. It may seem like that's an overreaction. But you have to understand, if the scroll can't be opened, God's plan of redemption can't move forward. And if God's plan of redemption can't move forward, then that means we're stuck with life as it is today. And I don't know how how much you think about this or how you feel about life as it is today, but there's a lot of life as it is today that is horrible. Now, don't get me wrong, there's lots that's wonderful too. I love a lot of things about life. There's there's a lot of things that are great, but there are a lot of things that are horrible. I'm not going to go into it, but just read the news, right? Um, Talk to a cop. Ask a social worker to tell you some stories. It doesn't take very long to realize that there is something profoundly wrong with the world as it is. 
We do horrible things to one another because of hatred and war. There's dysfunction that permeates our relationships, whether it's the highest levels of government or our family systems. Um, We destroy ourselves and the ones we love with our addictions and selfishness. And I don't know about you, but I am more than ready to leave all that stuff behind. And I am ready to get to the part of history where we get all of the good stuff in life and leave behind all of the bad. I'm ready for God to act. I'm ready to see what's in that scroll. But unless someone opens it, it's not going to happen. So John weeps. Is there no one who can open the scroll? Is there no one who can fix the mess the world is in? That's the problem. There is a scroll that no one can open. But there's a solution. And the solution is that Jesus can open the scroll. When the elder sees John weeping, and he gives him comfort in verse 5, it says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who can open the scroll. I know we haven't found anybody in the universe, but wait, there is one. And he gives them two Old Testament messianic titles. First, he calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, of course, was one of Jacob's sons. In the Old Testament, Jacob had 12 sons. They became the tribes of Israel. Judah was one of them. And Judah was the tribe that was promised, through you is going to come the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior of the world. And Judah was given the nickname of being a lion, and so this name, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, came about. He calls him the Root of David. David was king in the line of Judah. And he got promises, too, that out of his line, the Messiah would come. And so in the language now of plants, like family trees, we get Jesus or get the Messiah being called the Root of David. The elder says, this is the one. This is the one who can open the scroll, the line of Judah who is conquered. And he says, look. And so John looks. And what does he see? Does he see a lion? No, he sees a lamb. Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So somehow in chapter 4, when he was telling us everything that was around the throne, he neglected to mention that there was a lamb. Maybe he didn't see him at first. This little lamb standing in the midst of everything, in between the thrones, um, in between the living creatures. But this lamb, this lamb's not the sort of lamb that you would you know, give a stuffed animal of to your kids. Right? I'm not... I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but, but let's just face it, this is a weird-looking lamb. Right? It's just creepy. Don't, don't make a stuffed animal modeled on the lamb of Revelation and give that to your kids. That's like nightmare lamb, right? Because look at it. What does he describe it as? It's, it's a lamb that looks like it has been slain. So this is not fluffy little, Mary had a little lamb, lamb, right? This is bloody, looks like it had been killed lamb. 
and yet it's standing, it's still alive. Has seven horns, has seven eyes. It's a really great time to remember that Revelation is a symbolic book. When we see these descriptions of Revelation, we're not meant to take it literally, as in this is exactly what it's like. These are symbols meant to communicate powerfully through imagery, um, deep truths. So John is not trying to say that when you get to heaven, you will literally see a bloody lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Anymore than he's trying to say you're going to see a lion or you're going to see this root of a tree. Each of those things is communicating a truth. And namely, the truth is you're going to see Jesus. He's describing Jesus symbolically. He's saying like a lion, Jesus is powerful. He's saying Jesus is the root of the family tree of David. He's saying most importantly, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the one who offered his life, who died and now lives. And he did it for you and for me. And that sacrifice has become now so integral to his identity that for the rest of the book of Revelation and for all eternity, he is known as the Lamb. That's who he is. He's the Lamb who was slain. The seven horns are symbolic also. Throughout Scripture, horns are very consistently symbols of power. And in Revelation, we see the number seven all the time to reflect perfection or completeness. And so the seven horns is showing that Jesus has complete and perfect power. And the seven eyes, it tells us those are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So again, completeness, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit being sent out from Jesus. So we've got Jesus in all perfect power, standing in heaven, reminding us of his sacrifice for us, sending out the Holy Spirit into the world. John doesn't just see a weird lamb. He sees Jesus in all his glory, standing next to the Father. And then, the climactic moment of the whole story happens. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He did it. It's like the sword in the stone when Arthur just pulls the sword out. No, No one can do it. But he did it. He just walks up and he takes the scroll and and. and This is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the, I can't believe it finally happened. There was no one who could open the scroll. We've been waiting so long and now he's done it. It's like the moment in Christmas morning when your parents finally say, okay, you can open the presents. Or the moment in the wedding ceremony when the pastor says, you may kiss the bride. Or the moment after carrying a child for nine months when they finally place the baby in your arms and you look at them face to face. Can't believe it's finally here. After all this waiting, Jesus has taken the scroll and he's going to open it and finish what he started. And once he does this, the universe is so excited that it starts off this chain reaction of cascading worship that echoes throughout all creation. The response now is worship. It starts with the living creatures and the elders in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So as soon as he takes the scroll, the elders and the living creatures respond with worship. And they start singing a new song, not just praising the one on the throne, right? But now praising the Lamb because of his work of redemption. So you were slain. And through your death, you paid for the sins of the world and not just a, a few people, but people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, even far off, remote people like English speakers in Metamora, Illinois. But notice, they're not just praising him because he started the work of redemption. But they're praising because his work on the cross now qualifies him to open the scroll. That's what they're excited about. Do you see that in verse 9? They say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for, that is, because you were slain. That is, the fact that Jesus was slain, the fact that Jesus died on the cross and began the work of redemption, that's what qualifies him now to finish the work of redemption and open the scrolls. No one else was worthy because no one else purchased why their blood, uh, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But Jesus did that. He started redemption, and now he gets to finish it. It's like a starting pitcher in baseball who has thrown eight shutout innings. And it's time for the ninth inning, the final inning, and the manager has to decide who's going to close out the game. And he goes to the starting pitcher and he says, you've got us this far. You started it. It's time to finish. God doesn't have a bullpen. God doesn't have a closer he's going to bring in to finish the game. You know, well, Jesus, you've given us eight solid innings. Uh, good job. You, know, you died on the cross. You redeemed people. You started it. That's wonderful. Now when it comes time to finish stuff, I'm going to bring in my closer. No, that's not how it works. Jesus is the closer. Jesus started redemption and he's going to finish redemption. He's going to crush the serpent. He's going to defeat the devil. He's going to destroy evil. And he will make all things new. Jesus alone is worthy to finish the work of redemption because he's the one who started it. So they sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what the elders and the living creatures sing. And then worship continues to spread out like when you drop a stone in a pond and the circles just spread farther and farther and farther. And so next we see after the elders and living creatures all these angels in verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I don't know what myriads means. It's like a lot. It's like us saying millions. It's not necessarily that we mean literally a million, but we mean a lot. So he's saying innumerable, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. Again, he didn't mention these in chapters 4. It's like all of a sudden they just show up and like, we're here to sing too. (laughs) Worthy is the Lamb. 
And if that's not enough, every single creature in the universe comes in for the third verse. In verse 13, it says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so should we. So I want to close with an application that builds on what we talked about last week. Last week in chapter 4, we saw that God was sitting on His throne, ruling over all things. And the only appropriate response to a God who is ruling over all things is to worship. And now building on that, I want to add, and to the Lamb. Like they do in verse 13, right? To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. In addition to worshiping the Father for His control over all things, we worship the Son for His work of redemption. We praise Him because He started the work of redemption. He bought us with His blood. And we praise Him because He's going to finish the work of redemption. He is worthy to open the scroll, to do away with evil, and to restore all things. And so last week, as we moved from the sermon into a time of singing, that was the way we tried to tangibly build off of this and respond in worship. And today, we want to respond with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper that we're about to take together is a symbol that Jesus left us. And he left us this symbol so we would never forget that he is the lamb who was slain. And these symbols are symbols of death. His body, his blood given for us. The cup represents his blood. The bread represents his body. That are given to us to pay for our sins so that we could be redeemed. But do you remember the line that I always say, and it's because it's in Scripture, the line I always say at the end of the Lord's Supper, when we're done? For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes built into the Lord's Supper is both a remembrance of the beginning of the work of redemption and a reminder to hope, to look forward to the end of redemption. And so as we take this together this morning, you know, I mean, we do this every month. Don't let it be routine. Don't let it be just another ritual that you do. Let it be for you a response, an act of worship, joining in with all of creation to praise the Lamb for His work of redemption, for giving His body and His blood to purchase your soul back to God and to look forward with faith to Him opening the scroll and to bring an end to all evil and to making all things new. So let's pray and make that your heart orientation as we take the supper together. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for this window into heaven that reminds us of the central beating heart of reality, that you are on your throne, and the Son is to be praised above all things for his work of redemption. We are here today because we are a part of the blood-bought people. We have no business coming before your throne except that Jesus has made 
it possible. And so we want to respond with worship. Father, as we take this bread, as we drink this cup, may you work in our hearts to love you more because of what Jesus did on the cross and to get more and more excited for his return. In Jesus' name.